in Jude chapter 1, the only chapter in the book of Jude, there's a verse uh, that will grab a hold of one of the phrases here and then pray the Lord will bless us to build on this. Jude, verse 3, verse 2 says, Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you. And this is the phrase that I'd like to hold on to right here. And to exhort you or to encourage you that ye should earnestly, that means diligently, that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Jude encourages us and his writing and the purpose of it was to earnestly to encourage us to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. I want to talk to you about sort of some of the things that we believe and why we believe them. If we're going to contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints, we need to know what it's referring to. Now, Mount Carmel is um, 86 years old, the church. That's pretty old for Hartford County. But if you travel up to uh, Welch Track, which is about 30 miles north of here, the first old school or primitive Baptist church in this country was established in 1698, 322 years. You can drive up Interstate 95 and get off at the first exit after you cross the Delaware Toll. The church is right there on Welch Track Road. And the church has been meeting there consistently for 322 years. That's a long time. That's older than the United States of America. But if we're going to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, we need to be able to take it back further than just being able to go to Welch Track that's 322 years. We need to be able to connect some dots that take us all the way back to the time of the apostles. Now, one may or may not be able to connect the dots through lintage. I believe that if we had the information, we'd be able to do that. That we'd be able to identify the churches and the various names all the way back to the apostles. Sylvester Hassel has a very large book that has a whole lot of information in it. It's about probably four inches thick. And it gives us a clear picture of the church back to the times of the apostles. But more importantly than being able to connect the dots of the church going all the way back to the apostles, there's some 
identifying marks of the church that we should be able to recognize that were established in the early church that would help us to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Now, our church here, when it was constituted in 1934, uh, there's a a big chief notebook that's in the office that uh, some of the folks wrote down 13 different names that they were going to pick from to name the church here. One was called Bethlehem Primitive Baptist Church. Another one was Mount Carmel Old School Baptist Church. There's a whole host of names that they were considering, but they settled on Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church. The term primitive, if I was picking, I probably would not have picked the term primitive, personally. I like the term old school, and the term has been given to the church as old school back in 1832. But there were some men that were much more wise than I am that chose to use the term primitive. And the term primitive, it does not mean that we're like cavemen running around with clubs. That's not what it means. But what primitive means, I mean, you know, you've told other folks when they ask you where you go to church and you say primitive Baptist. Well, that throws up a lot of questions. But our forefathers knew what they were doing when they chose the name primitive. If nothing else, it opens up an opportunity for conversation. But primitive, what primitive actually means is first or original. And so our attempt is to know what the first apostles taught and how they worshiped and to pattern our worship as close as we can to the first apostles. So primitive meaning first or original. I was a little bit perplexed when we visited the church in Hopewell, New Jersey. The church in Hopewell, New Jersey, started out as a church that taught the doctrines of grace. And and as long as it existed, it was a large church. It was the third oldest uh, old school or primitive Baptist church in America, starting in 1715. And I was perplexed when I saw on the there's a beautiful wrought iron fence that uh, encompasses the cemetery that has over sixteen hundred and fifty graves All of those folks were uh, affiliated with the church there. And on this beautiful wrought iron fence, it said on the on the uh, on the sign on the wrought iron fence, it said First Baptist Church. And so I asked some of the trustees and I said, what does that mean? I said, "I, I, I don't understand because I grew up in the south and attended First Baptist Church, and I said, I don't understand. And they said, when this church was established in this community, it was the first Baptist church in the community. Where I grew up in Lubbock, there's a First Baptist Church, and there's also a Second Baptist Church. And then there's other Baptist churches. But that was how they chose the name there. But the term primitive means first or original, not the first in Bel Air. 
not the first in Harford County. But the term primitive means first or original, meaning that our, the pattern of our worship is as close as we can possibly get to how the apostles described the worship, how they worshiped, and what they taught when they worshiped. Elder Compton was asked to visit with a brother in his home uh, with a, uh, uh, that uh, a gentleman was there from another order and he was giving the history of the church that he pastored and he rolled out a scroll on the, on the floor and he told the starting date of the church that he pastored on that scroll. And this gentleman that had asked Brother Compton to visit with him said, well, the church that Elder Compton is pastoring, the church alone is older than the start date of that particular denomination. And the church that Elder Compton pastored was the old landmark church up in Pennsylvania that started in 1706 in that time frame. So we need to be able to trace the, it's important to trace it back. It's a blessing to be able to trace it here in this country. If you get a chance, it'd be a blessing to travel up to uh, Newark, Delaware and see the old Welch Track Church. And uh, you can, the building's still there and kept well. On one side of the building up toward the top around about uh, two feet below the, the ceiling. On the outside, you'll see uh, where... Uh, the brick has been repaired where a cannon was fired through there during the Revolutionary War. On the other side, it went, the cannon went all the way through and there's a, a hole on the other side that's about a two by two square where the cannon went all the way through the church. They actually had a, uh, 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 a platform under the pulpit where they would hide different soldiers and different ones and uh, it was said that George Washington, I know that he visited a lot of places along here, but uh, the story goes that George Washington and his troops stayed in the house across the street that's still there. There's still a, a garage area to house the horses that used to meet there. A great historical site. In 1832, around 1832, this, this began to be an issue in the late 1820s. Until that time in this area, the term Baptist was the term that was used for most of the most of the churches in this area. But in 1832, there began to be uh, a difference of understanding on the teaching of the scriptures. And there began to be a, uh, a strong movement uh, toward uh, missionaries. And it's not that uh, primitive Baptists are opposed to missionaries. They're not. Uh, we have folks that go to Africa, Brother Cook's aware of, to India, to the Philippines, places like that. But it, it's not the opposing missionaries itself, but it's the purpose of the mission that you go. Our folks go to deliver the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not to make children of God. But it's to feed the ones that God enlightens and blesses with his spirit. As we've looked at, the Holy Spirit is the one that sovereignly blesses with the second birth, with the spiritual birth. And the gospel comes along and encourages that individual that's been given spiritual life. So when they had this division in Black, at the Black Rock, it's called the Black Rock Address in 1832. 
it's just over near Catonsville, uh, off Swan Road, about 45 minutes from here. Beautiful building. They divided and uh, the, uh, there was those that claimed the title of the New School Movement and the others that held to the Old School Movement. And then the forefathers added to that the term primitive. In the South, primarily south of the Mason-Dixon line, the churches are referred to as primitive. North of the Mason-Dixon line, and there's not a whole lot of churches north of the Mason-Dixon line, they were referred to as old school or old school primitive Baptist. There are some that are referred to as particular primitive Baptist and some that have been referred to as peculiar primitive Baptist. And in the South, the extreme South, there are some that are referred to as hard shells. Anybody ever heard the term hard shell? When it was given, it was not given as a compliment. But then the primitive Baptist embraced that, that they were hard on the shells, S-H-A-L-L. Relating it back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So if we're going to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, we need to be able to, we need to go back through several generations, all the way back to what the apostles taught. That's our only basis. That's our only rule of practice. And so let's go all the way back. I love this chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters and I still believe it the way I was taught it uh, when I was 15 years old at my home church in Lubbock, Texas. And it describes right here four identifying marks of the New Testament church that we should be able to identify with. So whether or not we can connect the dots all the way back through succession, I believe that truly there is a succession among the Lord's churches that have continued and passed down. For instance, when one of the greatest experiences that I've ever witnessed was the Lord starting a new church. He did it up at Southampton, Pennsylvania. That's the one that we witnessed. And we, we were blessed to uh, witness that. And that's one of the greatest blessings that I've ever witnessed, the Lord starting a new church. But when the Lord started the church at Southampton, Pennsylvania, most of the folks that are now members there had either joined Mount Carmel or Wilmington, the Mount Carmel or the Wilmington Church, Summit Columbia, I think. Elsa was there. Elsa can attest, she can testify to what I'm saying. But when the church, when there was a body of believers, that there was enough folks that wanted to have regular services and embrace the articles of faith, we set a time aside and we uh, constituted the church at Southampton, Pennsylvania. And so up until that time, the church met and they were an extension. I'm not sure why they use this term, but they, uh, they call it an arm of Mount Carmel. Somebody said, well, if it's an arm, why is it not a leg or something else? But uh, it was an extension of Mount Carmel and Mount Carmel and Wilmington and Columbia and then when Southampton was constituted, it became its own church. 
that's accountable to God. Now, we have fellowship with Southampton, good fellowship with Southampton and Columbia, Wilmington and Blackrock and the churches around. But they became their own constituted body and they're accountable to the Lord. Mount Carmel is accountable to the Lord. We do not have a board. We do not have a group of folks that determine how Mount Carmel handles the operations of Mount Carmel. We are accountable to the Lord, and that's our accountability, and that's the same as Southampton. But the way that Southampton started, it was an outreach of Mount Carmel and of Wilmington and of Columbia. And we enjoy meeting with the folks in New York, and if the Lord ever blesses the church to be constituted there, very likely it will be part of an outreach of Mount Carmel as well. Mount Carmel was an outreach of some folks in North Carolina. The pastor from North Carolina came up here because there was a group of folks. I think originally it was eight people that it started with. And then immediately it began to grow. And it was an outreach of the church in North, of a church in North Carolina from the New River uh, Association. So let's go to Acts chapter 2 and let's look at four different areas right here that describe some, some identifying marks in the, apostles doc, in the apostles' church that Jesus Christ, the way that he set it up, and if we're off base on any of these, we need to get on base with the apostles. We need to worship the same doctrine, the same practice as the apostles. Now it starts back in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Just to give you a little history here, it talks about those that were pricked in the heart. What does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit has touched their heart. The Holy Spirit is effective 100% of the time when it touches somebody's heart. It's not an offer for salvation. It's a proclamation of salvation. When the Holy Spirit speaks, it gives life. And so the Holy Spirit right here spoke. It touched some folks. It gave life. So the folks that we're talking to right here are folks that have spiritual life. It says, now when they, were, they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Folks that even asked the question about what should we do next? It's an evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched your heart, has shown you that you have a need, that you need something else other than what you have in and of yourself. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Everyone whose heart has been touched and quickened by the Holy Spirit of God. We should repent. We ought to repent. In fact, we ought to repent all the time. Aren't there some things that you thought yesterday that you need to repent from? Are there some things that you said last week that you need to repent from? We should be a repenting people drawing closer to God. We should ask God to change our heart, to create in us a new heart, O oh God. Then he says, 
For this promise is unto you and to your children and to his all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. He's in the business of calling sinners. And he's still in that business. It's not an outdated message. He's the one that does the calling. He says, uh, for those that have been pricked in the heart, for those that have recognized, it says, and, 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 and even followed in gospel baptism, for those that, that God calls, he has created an entity. I'm sure there's a better term for it than, than, than what I'm saying. But he has created an entity that he refers to as his church. And he blesses his church to be a blessing for his people. Now, truly, the church glorifies the Lord or it ought to glorify the Lord. All the glory, all the praise should go to the Lord. He is totally sovereign and he deserves all the glory in the church. If there's anything that we have embraced in the church that takes away from the glory of the Lord, then we need to get rid of it. Amen. Now, at one point, we, uh, we outgrew the little building that we had here. This, uh, these, uh, these pillars were where the wall was, and that's where the pulpit was right there in this area. And uh, several had talked about, well, when are we going to add on to the church? And it became apparent that it was the thing to do when we had the right hand of fellowship. And there were so many folks that we went out into the aisle and we could, the, the, the right hand of fellowship just totally stopped one day. Anybody here remember that? They couldn't move because there wasn't any room to go around and even give the right hand of fellowship and shake hands. So we all agreed as a body that it was time to build on to Mount Carmel. I hope the Lord blesses us to witness that again someday. Brother Charles, you were here when we built on to Mount Carmel. You remember that? You were part of that. The topic came up at the dedication of the church. Some said, several came to me and said, well, who are we going to dedicate this new building to? Some said, let's dedicate it to Susan's grandfather, Elder Thompson. Now, I don't know Elder Thompson, didn't know Elder Thompson, but I, what I know of him, he would not have wanted the building dedicated to him. Some mentioned other folks that we ought to dedicate the building to. Then somebody said, well, how about we dedicate the building to you? Well, I didn't want the building dedicated to me. I said, I've got a solution. How about we do what they did in the Old Testament, in the New? Let's dedicate it to the Lord. The Lord is the one, and I guarantee you, Elder Thompson would have wanted it dedicated to the Lord. He would, even though he pastored here nearly 50 years. He didn't want the church dedicated to him. You see, the Lord is the one that gets the glory and the Lord gets all the glory. So the way that he designed his church, he designed it in such a way that our worship 
and our doctrine and our practice points us to the Lord. If there's anything that we've picked up along the way that takes us away from focusing upon the Lord, then we should pray that God would bless us to repent of it and remove it. Four things right here that we'll touch on, and you can go home and read these yourself. Four things. Verse 41. Then they that gladly received the word, they were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, typically among Old Baptist, uh, Primitive Baptist, Old Baptist, there's, a, there's a, an example of the believers in Acts chapter 1. It says there was about 120. I'm not opposed at all to a large number of folks. I'm not at all opposed to that. I've been to Cincinnati where they had large uh, annual meetings, annual services, and they had six, 800 people there. Been to the associations out in West Texas, and uh, there were, at the West Texas Association, there were four or 500 people, and the singing was wonderful there. But typically speaking, among the Old Baptist, you'll find in congregations... About 80, 90, 100 folks. Mount Carmel, it may surprise you, is a large church compared to many gatherings of believers. There's a few churches in the south like Nashville, Jackson, Mississippi. They'll have between 200 and 250 in in their regular worship. There's a lot of churches, a lot, that have 10, 15, 20 25, 30 folks in their worship service. The church up here at Welch Track that's met for over 300 years. It's my understanding that they have about 8 or 10, 12 folks that continue to meet there. Cecil Darty, an able minister that preached here many times at Mount Carmel, he's now with the Lord. I heard him preach at a large meeting in Cincinnati. There were four or 500 people there. And he said, I love these large meetings. But he said, I can't wait to get back home to Georgia and visit those little bands of believers that are scattered out through the hills of Georgia. The Lord has told us that where two or three are gathered together in his name, that he's promised to be there as well. So it's not dependent upon a large group. A large group is great, and that's a great blessing. But it's not dependent upon that. So it says here, there were 3,000 souls that were added. And it says, then there are four things that are mentioned right here. So if we're going to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, here it describes some of the marks that are identifying marks of the New Testament church. And they continued. So what is it when we come together each week? We're continuing in something, are we not? Um, There's only one example of Philip and the eunuch that were baptized. And it says that he went on his way. And it does not describe that he continued with the body of believers. And he very well may. Elder John Gano, when he was Uh, He was referred to as the fighting chaplain, friend of George Washington. When he was uh, the chaplain in the Revolutionary War, there were folks that he ministered to 
that never made it back to, the, uh, to, to their homelands and uh, maybe were killed in battle and had the blessing and privilege of meeting with a body of believers. But the example that we have for the believers is that those that have been touched by the Spirit of God, that they have an entity or a church or a church family to worship together in, and they have that blessing of continuing on the rest of their life. Now the church, and I think this is a wonderful blessing, in Zechariah chapter 8, it describes the church, and it describes that there's old men and old women leaning on their staff for very age. By the way, Brother David, I'm sorry, I just remembered this, but when I thought of staff, I remembered. Brother David wanted us to pray for him. He said, sometimes I'm having to walk with a cane because I've got knee problems now. Well, the scripture defines that sometimes when we get a little older, we need a staff to help us along the way. And he says that in the church, there's old men and old women, but he also says that there's little children that are playing around as well. If you've got the little children, then you've got the parents as well. So this entity, this, this body, this body that's described as a church is for the entire family. It's a great blessing to be able. I love the sound of these children. I, I, it just, just blesses my heart to hear these children. I, I love the, the cries of the children. I am so thankful for the parents bringing them to the worship service. It's a great blessing. The church is for the entire family for all ages. It says they continued steadfastly. Number one in the apostles doctrine. So it's important for us to know what is it that the apostles taught. If we're going to embrace what the apostles doctrine is, we need to know what the apostles taught. I'm just going to, we touched on it a while ago in uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And she shall bring forth the son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Here it is in Romans chapter 8. And this is part of the apostles doctrine. The apostle Paul pinned this down right here. He says, for whom he did foreknow. Now, that doesn't mean that he foreknew what you were going to do, whether you were going to accept him or reject him. What it means is that he foreknows you, that he knows who you are, where you are, and he knows when he plants his spirit within you. He says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now, what does predestinate mean? You can break it down and it tells you what it means. Predestinate simply means, and it's mentioned twice in the scriptures, God predetermined your destination. What does that mean? It just simply means that he predetermined where you're going to end up. Now, I have to tell you, I really am glad that it was in his hands and not mine. And I'm really thankful That your destination is not in my hands, but your destination is in the hands of God and God foreknew you. When did he foreknow you? We're taught in Revelation chapter five and seven and 13 and and Ephesians chapter one 
that he foreknew you from before the foundation of the world. So that was even before you were born, you were foreknown by God. So here he tells us that those that he foreknew, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate. That means he predetermined where they're going to end up. I can't even I I can't even determine where I'm going to end up if I start from here to New York City. If I start from here to Fairfax, Virginia or Atlanta, Georgia. I usually end up making some wrong turns along the way and it takes me all this extra time to get back on track. Now, you might say, well, why don't you listen to GPS? And I do most of the time, not all the time. I should, but I can't even determine how I'm going to get from point A to point B, much less determine my destination eternally speaking. I'm not even, I don't even have the ability to do that. Now let's look what he says. For those that's, Tristan, this same number of people that he starts out with right here, which we're taught is a vast number of people, that he has a people in every nation, kindred, tongue. He compares it to the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. So God's family is a big family. It's a large family. And he says, those that he foreknew, he predestinated. And then he says, he comes on down and he says, those that he predestinated, he also called. So what he's saying right here is that if you are an elect child of God, you were foreknown, first of all, before the foundation of the world, you were predestinated by God himself to live with God in glory. And at some point in time between conception and death, you are called by the Holy Spirit of God. And it is a, an effectual calling. It might be while you're sitting in church under the sound of the gospel, or it might be when you're at home, it might be at, uh, at the nighttime. It could even be like, uh, like John while he was yet in his mother's womb, or it could be like David while he was upon his mother's breast, feeding upon his brother, mother's breast. It could be at those different times. But at some point in time, those that are foreknown are predestinated and the same number of those that are predestinated are called. And it's an effectual calling all the time. Now, then he says he doesn't stop right there. He says those that are called. Let me tell you, if you if you love the Lord, if you want to know more about him, it's not because of what you did for him, but what he's done for you. It is. It's all about him. It, it's all about him. It really is. He says now those that he called, they're in a really good position spiritually. Because it says he justified them. Now, how did he justify them? Was it because of something that they did? We're taught that our most righteousness is his filthy sins. Our most righteous act. We can't do anything to bring merit and favor on our condition because we're sinners. We've missed the mark. And if left alone without the grace of God, we'll choose the wrong direction every single time. 
It's God's grace that restrains us. Aren't you thankful that you've got a hedge of grace round about you? I mean, wouldn't you probably have done a whole lot worse than you've done if you didn't have God's grace to restrain you along the way? It's God's grace through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are justified. Now, we're taught in Romans chapter 9 that uh, in chapter 8, oh, I love this chapter. It's really, really good right here. I'll, I'll just touch on it here in just a minute. So those that he foreknew, then he did predestinate, them he called, and those he called he justified, and those that he justified he also glorified. What does that simply mean? Now, we haven't experienced the glorification process. It's begun right now, but we haven't experienced the fullness of it like we are going to experience it when we get to glory. We sing about heaven. We believe that we're going to heaven. We have a hope in heaven. We hope that we'll see our loved ones in heaven. But most especially, we hope we'll see Jesus Christ in heaven. When we land on heaven's shore, we're going to be in a glorified state. So those are some marks of the New Testament church. They are. Here's two more. Verse 31 says, He says, those that he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Even Satan himself may be against you. There may be folks that you know that are against you. But he says right here that if God's for you, who can be against you? I don't remember the author of the song, but uh, me and God. Well, it's really God and I. It's really holy God. He has it all. You see, he carries all of the vote for each one of us. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? He says in verse 33, he says, and in fact, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? You may have folks that want to lay something to your charge that would hinder your relationship with the Lord or hinder your position with Christ. But he says that if God loves you, there's nobody that can lay anything to your charge. Did you know that that includes yourself? You might say, well, I don't deserve the blessings of God. You're right. You don't. None of us do. But you can't even lay that to your charge. Because Jesus Christ has paid the price for you. There's nobody. That means uh, anyone that you might know yourself or the devil himself that can lay anything to your charge. Why? Because you've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood was shed for you. And because of that, nobody, including Satan himself, can lay anything to your charge. Sounds to me like you're in a pretty good position, does it not? When no one can lay anything to your charge because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Well, you know what? That's what the apostles taught. I mean, if I'm off base, 
That's how it's written in my Bible, and I expect it is yours. expect it is. Oh, it gets even better down here. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? He says, or, or, um, or famine or nakedness or peril. As it is written, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37 says, I love this. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. I don't just like, I mean, I'm thankful just to be a conqueror. That would be wonderful. But he says, in all of these things, in all the things that Christ has done for you and for I, we are more than conquerors. Now that puts us in a really good I don't know. I hope you leave encouraged. You ought to be. You ought to be. It, I mean, forgive my stammering tongue, but I tell you, take the message and you ought to leave encouraged because you are more than conquerors. Now, I want to tell you, Satan would send some things your way to hinder you. Did he send anything your way last week that hindered you? I'm so glad I'm the only one that nobody here had anything that hindered them. Well, I want to tell you the rest of the story. I liked Paul Harvey. I know that dates me. You probably don't even know who Paul Harvey was. But I like Paul Harvey because he said, now I'm going to give you the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is this. That through Jesus Christ and through his blood, you are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Now that puts you in a really good position. I don't care what happens to you this week. You just lean on the promise that you are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. All right. This gets really good. He says, for I'm persuaded. He says, now in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Paul says, I'm persuaded. Did you know what? I think the reason he wrote this right here. Paul says, I'm persuaded about this. And he's saying, I want you to be persuaded as well. He says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Apostle Paul says, I'm persuaded about this. I want you to be persuaded about this. I want you to be persuaded that you are victorious through Jesus Christ. That's what the apostles taught. That's not all they taught, but that's, that's, that's a really good start. Let's go back and we'll look. There are four aspects right here. We ought, and maybe Lord will bless us to speak on the others at, at, at real soon. And they continued steadfastly. What does that mean? That just simply means that when you have the opportunity to meet and worship the Lord, that you do it diligently. That means that it's a priority in your life. That means you schedule all the other events around your worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So it says they continued steadfastly. Did you know what? That, by and large, that's something you have control of. Really is. Now you have control. And I'll tell you when it starts. For meeting on Sunday morning, let me tell you when it starts. At the latest... It starts on Saturday night. I'll tell you what, you go to bed when I go to bed, and you'll be able to get up in time to go to church. You will. But you figure out when that is. 
they continued steadfastly. It starts on Saturday night. You go to bed in time to get up to go to church and you'll be excited about getting up to go to church. You can't wait to get to church because you can't wait to see your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're looking forward to it. You're looking forward to being able to shake their hand and embrace them, encourage them. There are three other elements of the New Testament church. They continued steadfastly, number one, in the apostles' doctrine. The second mark of the church, really important right here. They continued in fellowship. That means that they were together. They stayed and had lunch. They fellowshiped through the week. They were together. The third thing is breaking of bread and in prayers. Four elements that the apostles' church embraced that if we're going to embrace the apostles' doctrine, if we're going to earnestly contend for the saints, that was the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, we need to be able to trace it all the way back to what the apostles taught. And if we're off on anything, we need to modify it. If we're, we're the ones that need to change, not change what the apostles taught. May God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you.